the Biz News Power Hour. Well, this is the final episode of the Biz News Power Hour for the year. Yep, we're going on holiday tomorrow with the rest of the country and we'll be back with you in early January. And I hope you enjoy the fair that is coming up. We certainly have enjoyed being in your company uh, since uh, when did we launch, Justin? It would have been, oof, was it in April, uh, March, April uh, this year that we had our first episode of the Power Hour? I think from what I can remember, Alec, it was the 1st of March. I remember that you had penciled in your agreement with FMR at the time around the 10th of February. We had around 15 days to scurry to get ready. And what a 15 days those were. But the 10 months that have come thereafter have been so much fun. I mean, the first first few months were months of learning. Well, I mean, every month has been a month of learning, but it's uh, just got better and better. And um, we've had great guests, learned so much from them. And hopefully next year just is even better than this. If if that can be the case, that would be great. I think the actual date was the 8th of March. 8th of March. Okay. Just, lucky yeah. number eight. Well, there we go. Well, of course, go. eight <laughs> is a very lucky number. It's infinity. And if you ask any Chinese person for the luckiest number, they will always come back to you in eight. And we've got a, a – I suppose we can sneak it through, can't we, Nadia, our new, our new colleague? Uh, Michael, yes, why don't we? Michael Apple, uh, who's the uh, top reporter at ENCA, is joining Biz News. He'll be with us from the 1st of January. So he'll also be featuring on our show. And we're very excited to have Michael as part of the team. And, uh, well, I suppose we are looking forward to getting, as Justin was saying, continuing this incredible learning process that we've had and in sharing interviews with our community i guess next year as well justin a little bit more focus on the investment side as well we we don't like doing results interviews they aren't usually adding a heck of a lot of value but digging in as you've been doing lately uh, with some of the chief executives and bringing some unusual insights which will help people who thinking of investing in those companies Exactly, Alec. And going from an investment perspective next year, maybe look to get some asset managers that look at it from a global perspective. Of course, the South African JSE with the Pitfulians of this world and the David Shapiro's is great. However, we constitute a very small proportion of the global equity market. So to get the Robert Smiths and the likes of those individuals on the show will be some great value add. And we're definitely looking to add some more flavor in that respect in 2022. Robert Smith, wow, there's a, a, a name who was very popular on uh, well his interview with the Biz News community. Of course, we've got this advantage here in that we have a, a sizable podcasting audience and a substantial YouTube audience. So we can see, can't we, Nadia, exactly what people are interested in and hopefully shape our product accordingly. Yeah, uh, it's amazing. And the best thing about it is like the surprises, you know, when we think that something may just – go right and then people really, they really love it so it's a really cool insight into what's going on with people indeed well we are here to serve our community and we are doing it again this evening uh, we've got some very interesting interviews there's a project uh, that this being the holiday time uh, anyone who's heading towards plet will find this well worth uh, looking at. And by the way, uh, we forgot to mention, Justin, although we started with Fine Music Radio on the 8th of March, uh, we've also uh, now for the last few months uh, also been broadcasting on High FM. And uh, that's been with Kathy and her team has been an absolute pleasure as well. Of course, and then there's uh, there's the podcasts and there's the videos. So uh, a lot on the Business Power Hour uh, that is getting through to audiences all around South Africa. But uh, just to get back to what I was mentioning earlier, as far as Plettenberg Bay is concerned, we spoke today uh, to Craig Young, who's developing and a quite extraordinary project. It's a 100 hectare uh, reserve, I suppose you could call it, like a little resort with 30 homes. You can have a quarter acre home. So you work that out. If there's only a quarter acre of a home, then a quarter acre is, is what, a thousand meters? And I think there's, uh, well, anyway, let's not, not worry about that, but it's a very small part of it. 
And then you've got this huge expanse around it. It's called Ingwe. And uh, we've got an interesting uh, discussion with him on why they're doing this and the kind of people who actually would be going along and investing in Ingwe. If you're heading towards Plet and you think that this is something that might appeal to you to get all the information on Biz News. But we've got a, a, an interview with uh, Craig coming up. And then, of course, Magnus Haystick, this being a Wednesday and the final one of the year. He's now taken Again, having a look at the difference between local and offshore, he's taken a 10-year view and he's compared Old Mutual Investors Fund, which I'm sure many people listening to this are invested in. It's the biggest unit trust in South Africa with the returns that you could have got from Franklin Templeton run-of-the-mill international uh, unit trusts. And it's quite extraordinary. The offshore investment, uh, what he did was he, he took the cost of a motor vehicle back 10 years ago and then translated that into how much of the motor vehicle you could have bought if you'd put in the full price of the vehicle 10 years ago into Old Mutual and the full price 10 years ago into Franklin Templeton. It's it's eye-opening indeed. Justin, you also had an interview with one of my favorite chief executives today. Yes, Andres from Hayden from... Afri, Matt, before I talk on that, Alec, I am going to play tomorrow at 4.30 in the morning. So I'll do some due diligence on Ingwe along the road <laughs> and maybe give some feedback from there. But Andres van Heerden from Afri, Matt, always great to chat with him. One of the best management teams on the JSC. They've done, they've grown via acquisition. They've been very clever and meticulous in their planning and the way they go about things. The, the interview does focus on their latest acquisition, but more on the art of deal making. We see on the JSC so many management teams make errors um, by acquisition, whereas Afrimat just seemed to do everything so perfectly. So I chat to him more on the art of deal making than this specific deal. Um, but they're going into the commodity space. They've turned from a buildings materials and aggregates building uh, a company into more of a mid-tier miner. So very interesting stuff going on in Afrimat. Looking forward to hearing that one too. Rightrock believes that with every change in life comes opportunity and the markets aren't any different. The daily movement in the markets means change for us all, sometimes small, sometimes big. This daily market report is made just for you by BrightRock, the first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. Well, as this is our last program of the year, we obviously have to find out what's going on in the news on the, uh, well, all around South Africa. And here is Nadia Swat. South Africa's High Court has ordered former President Jacob Zuma to return to jail after setting aside a decision to release him on medical parole. The court found that former National Commissioner of Correctional Services, Arthur Fraser, was influenced by an error of law into believing that he was entitled to grant medical parole to Zuma when the Medical Parole Advisory Board had found that Zuma did not meet the necessary requirements. Judge Elias Matoyane said the former president had defied the Zondo Commission, the judiciary, and the rule of law, and was resolute in his refusal to participate in the Commission's proceedings. Zuma's legal team is appealing against the latest court ruling, and according to his foundation, the judgment is clearly wrong, and there are strong prospects that a higher court will come to a totally different conclusion. Australia has lifted its ban on travellers from South Africa and seven neighbouring countries following the United Kingdom's decision to scrap its controversial red list. The world is slowly reopening to South Africa following almost three weeks of intense travel bans imposed in the wake of Omicron's discovery. But with Omicron now becoming the dominant variant in London, the UK conceded that the travel ban on South Africa and its neighbouring countries had become redundant. South Africa and 10 other countries were removed from the red list on Wednesday morning. Consumer inflation soared to its highest level in more than four years in November, driven largely by rising fuel prices that have taken their toll on consumers in recent months. The increase was in line with expectations and comes after the Reserve Bank raised its benchmark interest rate in November to help keep inflation expectations anchored in the face of building price pressures. Consumer price inflation, as measured by Stats SA's Consumer Price Index, hit 5.5% year-on-year in November, its biggest annual increase since March 2017, when the rate was 6.1%. And core inflation, however, or prices stripped of more volatile items, including fuel and food, 
remained muted at 3.3% in November, pointing to still suppressed demand in the economy. Justin, back to you for the market report. Thanks, Nods. The JSE Ulsha Index was up at 71,800. In the currency markets, the rand was weaker against all the major currencies, to 16 rand 18 cents to the dollar, 21 rand 45 cents to the pound, and 18 rand 23 cents to the euro. Gold is low at $1,770 an ounce. Kruger Rand will put you back around 30,000 rand. Brent crude is trading at $73.50 a barrel, and the premier cryptocurrency will cost you around 780,000 rand. In the financial news, IronGate, which manages a portfolio of 36 properties valued at 15 billion rand across Australia and New Zealand, said on Wednesday that its suitor has sweetened its offer for its shares. Fund manager 360 Capital has increased the offer price to $1.72 per share, slightly up from $1.65, which IronGate has previously rejected. The latest proposal values IronGate, which was previously known as Investec Australia Property Fund, at 12.5 billion rand. IronGate said its board was considering the revised offer, which is 7.2% higher than the original offer made in mid-October. Well, thank you, Justin and uh, Nadia. It's been such a pleasure working with you this year, and we'll be back with our market reports again in early January. This daily market report was made just for you by BrightRock, the first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. Today is Wednesday, December 15th. And this is your FT News Briefing. The Federal Reserve is continuing to ramp up its fight against inflation, and a British regulator lashes out at what it calls irresponsible cryptocurrency ads. Plus... So she's sort of been a a bull in a bull market, and that's worked out really well for her until now. We'll talk about Kathy Wood. She's been one of the most successful asset managers during the pandemic. Now she's stumbling hard. I'm Mark Filipino, and here's the news you need. The UK's advertising watchdog says several cryptocurrency companies have put out ads that are misleading and irresponsible. The Advertising Standards Authority is set to issue a formal rebuke today. It called out two companies, Coinbase and eToro by name. It also criticizes Papa John's for a promotion that offered pizza in exchange for Bitcoin. The regulator says these ads make crypto investing sound fun and easy and downplay the risks. The watchdog will also tell companies to make it clear that crypto assets are not regulated in the UK and that investors are subject to tax liability. The Federal Reserve is set to toughen its stance on inflation today. Fed officials look set to boost expectations for more interest rate increases next year to fight rising costs, and they're expected to announce a faster scaling back of the pandemic bond buying program. Here's our U.S. economics editor, Colby Smith. In early November, it revealed that it would be winding down its asset purchase program by a pace of $15 billion a month. Um, now they're looking to slash those purchases at double that pace, so by $30 billion a month. And that's in order to uh, set the Fed up to have space to raise interest rates next year earlier than it initially expected. Now, when it comes to rate increases, there's a new dot plot coming out today. And Colby reports that Fed officials will likely signal support for two increases next year and three or four the following year. She says for now, markets are taking the new outlook in stride. What would potentially rattle financial markets is if the Fed was taking a significantly more hawkish approach. So let's say they're penciling three interest rate increases or more, um, or, uh, you know, the, the tone, uh, or Powell's tone during the press conference shows that they are, uh, really kind of thinking about a different approach, uh, to policy in the face of higher inflation. But for right now, it seems like markets are more or less in line with Fed expectations at this point. So hopefully, uh, there isn't too big of a shock uh, later today. Colby Smith is the FT's U.S. economics editor. Kathy Wood is known as the queen of the bull market. The founder of ARK Invest is famous for targeting disruptive technology companies. She bought into Tesla early on. For the past five years, her flagship ARK Disruptive Innovation Exchange Traded Fund has shot up about 40% a year. But now her investments are taking a beating. The FT's asset management editor, Harriet Agnew, joins me now to talk more about what's going on with Kathy Wood and ARK Invest. 
Hey, Harriet. Hi, Mog. So, Harriet, tell us more about Kathy Wood. You know, how did she make her mark on the markets? I'd say that over the past couple of years, Kathy Wood has really um, found her place as the sort of poster child of the tech-driven bull market that we've experienced. She talks about these big picture themes around things like uh, the genomic revolution around automation and robotics, artificial intelligence, uh, space exploration. Um, and all of these things have really captivated the minds of um, retail investors. Um, and she's built up a big following within a lot of them um, to the point where there's even Kathy Wood merchandise. So there's a great T-shirt where you see her um, riding on, a, on top of a bull and it just says Kathy Wood, queen of the bull market. In many ways, she's sort of the antithesis of what we think of as traditional Wall Street. She's developed um, a big presence on social media and she's very savvy with, um, with how she markets herself. Yeah, I mean, she does a, a great job marketing herself. But what is her financial success based on? I suppose one of the most eye-catching moments for her was a couple of years ago in May 2019 when Tesla shares were trading at around $200 a share. Anyway, Kathy Wood came and she outlined this incredibly bullish valuation um, for Tesla at $1.4 So basically saying that each of its shares were worth $6,000 a share. And then... In 2020, during the pandemic, she just had this year of incredibly eye-catching um, performance. Um, so the fund was up 150% for the year, which is enormous. And I think what happened was um, COVID accelerated the digital trends that were underway already and um, benefited a lot of her holdings. Now, how important has Tesla been to her success? Tesla is now um, Arc Innovation's biggest position. And so if you strip out the performance of Tesla, which has had a phenomenal run, then the performance of ARK doesn't look as good. And indeed, if Tesla shares come off, then ARK's going to be, be hit by that as well. So she's not just vulnerable to rise in interest rates. Um, she's vulnerable to any jitteriness uh, around Tesla. So earlier you said Kathy Wood is very popular among retail investors. But what do asset managers think about her strategy? Look, she's brought an enormous amount of innovation to the asset management industry just through being a pioneer in this um, actively managed ETF market. Critics will say that she's been a sort of massive beneficiary of the monetary stimulus that we've seen during the pandemic. So low interest rates have really benefited a lot of these high risk companies that ARC bets on. So she's sort of been a, a bull in a bull market, and that's worked out really well for her until now. Yeah, I mean, ARC is down 25% this year. Yeah, I mean, I think the other really important point about the, the performance is that while her performance of ARC Innovation looks really strong, so over the past five years, it's recorded an average of 40% a year, which on the face of it looks phenomenal. But what happened was for most of that time, the fund's asset base was really small. And so she made big returns on a small asset base. So a lot of the investors who came in towards the end are actually now nursing losses. So really this 40% a year over five years kind of masks the reality, which is that most of her investors in, um, in ARK Innovation will be underwater. So Harriet, if one of the main criticisms of ARK and Kathy Wood's strategy is that it, it benefited a lot from low interest rates, where do Kathy Wood and ARK go from here as... We start to enter a, a higher higher interest rate environment. That's the big question for ARC and a lot of its holdings. Um, as interest rates go up, these are likely to sell off because they're very sensitive to a rise in interest rates. And so the worry is that sentiment could be turning against these kind of companies. Sentiment could be turning against ARC. And I think you've got a lot of these phenomena that benefited ARC on the way up may hurt it on the way down. So, for example, um, when you're investing in less liquid companies and you're putting pouring more and more money into them. When they're going up, it pushes them up. And that's a great um, uh, virtuous circle. But then the same thing can happen in reverse on the way down. Uh, and it can put the price, push the prices down if you have to, um, if you have to redeem from them. Um, there's also the point about transparency, which I, I think is one of the, we, we spoke about earlier, the, the, the sort of notion of authenticity helped her find favor with retail investors. Uh, and people love that transparency that she gives around her, her research and things and her positions. But again, this could be a double-edged sword because people could sort of front-run her positions because they, because they know what they are and they know what she's trading. Harry Agnew is the FT's asset management editor. Before we go, Britain can now be called the world's leader in pest control. 
Britain's Rent-A-Kill is buying the U.S. pest group Terminix in a nearly $7 billion deal. It'll make Rent-A-Kill the biggest pest control company on the planet. And it's a good time to be in the business of trapping and killing bugs and rodents. The industry is growing. There are more middle-class households and more fear of viruses and diseases brought about by COVID-19 and climate change. You can read more on all of these stories at FT.com. This has been your daily FT News Briefing. Make sure you check back tomorrow for the latest business news. Magnus Haystick joins us as usual on a Wednesday. Magnus, it's our last program of the year and quite appropriate, I guess, to have a look back at some of the work that you've been doing, considering a comparison between what would have happened if you put your money into Old Mutual Investors Fund, one of the biggest unit trusts here in South Africa, and the U.S. Opportunities Fund that is run by Franklin Templeton, um, and quite well, quite popular in South Africa as well, given Franklin Templeton's uh, investments here many years ago. And you've you've gone back ten years, which is interesting. But what were the conclusions? Well, if you go back, the context, of course, uh, Alec. Good afternoon or good morning. Is that you know, 2010, 2011, something happened in the big uh, the big race offshore versus onshore. Up to that point, for many years, eight years in fact, South Africa was a superb place to be. The commodity cycle was running, platinum, gold, you name it, diamonds. When we still had a diamond mine, they were really generating phenomenal profits. We had the World Cup that boosted the construction stocks. But 2010, 2011, if you someone who's been watching the market. Markets started diverging. Our markets started diverging very badly downwards. And, 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 and I started writing about this and saying, guys, we need to look at other uh, alternatives to build personal wealth. And of course, you ran up against a lot of competition and, and resistance from the vested interests. But if I can use the analogy of a horse race, and I know you know horse racing very well, where in horse racing, you can, not place bets after the bell is gone and the horses are out of the stalls and off they're running. But in the investment market, you can. You have the liberty of changing horses, changing jockeys, changing whatever. You can get out of one horse and back another horse based on what's happening in the market. And that's been fantastic if you made some switches along the line. So 10 years down the line, and so 10 years is a long term, it's, it's, it's a full cycle the difference in RAND returns today is so stark and so vast, we have to talk about it. It's starting to affect people's investment behavior and also their purchasing behavior in the sense that they started saving for something 10 years ago, thinking they'll have built up enough capital for a car or a house, and they find that they have not built up that sufficient capital. And in the chart I sent you, I did a study, 100,000 rand 10 years ago bought you roughly uh, an, an, a Santa Fe Hyundai brand new motor car. You needed to put a bit of money in. That car today, the launch price is a million rand. Uh, the, new Sun, uh, the new Hyundai Palisade that's just come out. So if you put your money to the old mutual fund 10 years ago, with the intention of buying a new car 10 years later, you can only buy a quarter Whoa. of that car. Only a quarter. Your old mutual has only gone up to 225,000 Rand over a 10-year period, barely beating inflation over 10 years and not beating inflation over five years and even three years. As you switch horses, as I use the analogy, and put some money offshore, 100,000 into the Franklin Templeton Fund, you can buy that new car for cash today. You had 985,000 Rand in your, in your investment account, which shows you that had you stuck with a dollar-based investment, you managed to protect your dollar-based expenses in South Africa. Now, I've been beating that drum as far as I can remember. There's a lot of stuff that is priced in dollars. One is cars medical equipment, medical treatment, petrol, oil. And if you're going to be saving in a currency that does not protect you, you're going to get poor. And that is what is happening with middle class today. They can only buy a smaller car or half the car or a quarter of the car. 
you can only buy half the house you could have bought 10 years or five years ago. And, and, and it's something that, you know, we really, I, I really try to get um, uh, uh, newspapers and media outlets to publish these. They're just not interested. It's not in their interest because their biggest advertisers are the old mutuals of the world, are the Sunlums, and they just keep on telling the uh, investors, just hang on. They don't give them all the facts. Business gives people the facts and they can make up their own minds. That's, that's, that's all I'm saying. But it's, it's been astounding how poorly the local markets have done. And if I can draw the line right through to Regulation 28, this is exactly what's happening with pension funds. The purchasing power of pension funds over the last 10 years has not grown by much, but not more than 1% or 2%. So people are actually getting back their money that they've put in, left it there, maybe with a percent or two of growth up to uh, 10 years later. And I'm saying that's not good enough. You know, really they have to push up the regulation, 28 limitation of 30% to 40, maybe 50. Otherwise, investors should be made aware of your pension fund is not going to provide for you. Here are the facts of the last 10 years. It's not high fees. It's not bad investment decisions by your advisors. It's the very, very slow growth being generated by the South African economy, which trundles down into the slow growth of the JSE, which, by the way, is is emptying, if I can use the word. Companies are delisting at a rapid pace, 300 in the last five years, with more to come. So your opportunity set on the JSE is disappearing. But the narrative is bait fuss, don't panic, it will come right. And the more I analyze and the more I read and do my own critical thinking, I'm saying it's not going to happen, Alec. Uh, you're going to be disappointed by your investment returns in retirement funds, and you need to really build some nest egg, which is not correlated to the local market and, of course, the local currency. This is really interesting stuff. So the rational place to start, though, is this Regulation 28, which stops South Africans from investing more than 30% of their retirement funding offshore. But just to go back a little bit, why did you pick Old Mutual Investors and the Franklin Templeton Opportunities Fund as a comparison? Well, the Old Mutual Investors Fund is the largest equity-only, SA equity-only fund in Old Mutual Stable. And Old Mutual is probably the largest advertiser in South Africa. It advertises in, on all platforms, all radio stations, and they, they, the more they underperform, the more they advertise. So they're trying to conceal the bad performance with, with more advertising. And unfortunately, we know advertising does work. People are, are, are quite relaxed, and they just hear this fantastic advertising, and they don't apply their own critical thinking. Franklin Templeton is a fund that was a company I've been dealing with them for 25 years, and these funds have not been chosen in hindsight. It's on record that we started telling our clients in 2010, 2011, get into Templeton, and I've not even chosen one of their high-flying funds. Their, their, tech, their technology fund has done even better. The biotechnology fund is even better. I mean, if you look at the returns of the Invesco technology funds that you use in your portfolio, the returns have been better than the fund that I've used. This is just a broad-based U.S. opportunities fund. It's focused in the U.S. market. So I'm not picking an eyesight. These funds have been used for 10 years in our portfolios, and the outcomes are not marginally different. They are vastly different. I mean, in 10 years, which is not a long time in investment markets, to have outperformed by a factor of four, it's just under, it's just astounding. It's not it's not 1% or 2%. It is an immense difference. And it's impoverishing people who are not prepared to make that leap uh, and, and get some offshore exposure. But coming back to Regulation 28, yeah, you have an, uh, a government regulation telling, in effect, telling investors how to invest their money. This is the formula. You can only invest on, on this basis during the time of your life from 20 to 65, that you are that you should be taking risks and building up capital 
You are not allowed to take risks with your pension because you're stupid. You don't know how to handle your money. But the irony is when you cash out your pension one day at 60 or 65 and you take out your pension, you can put it 100% into offshore funds, 100% into gold. So where does that, how does that work? It's not logical to me. But the bottom line is the average person in a South African pension fund has become incredibly poor on a relative basis over the last 10 years. And, of course, that makes me the most popular commentator out there because that's not the message that the industry wants to get out. It's not in their interest, but, you know, I don't care. Um, Magnus, like you, I, I'm very interested to actually take it one step further into the state funds. Uh, the state allows its employees to have a defined benefit. In other words, they don't really care what the performance is going to be uh, in those pension funds. They are going to get 2% of salary, say, uh, for the number of years that they've worked. Are they also uh, subjected to Regulation 28? Because I'm, I'm seeing here, if there's a really bad return or bad performance from the state pension funds, they don't have the ability to say, well, the market didn't do that well, as happens in the private sector, so you're not going to get a great pension. They stuck in, they locked in, and if they're underperforming as well, we as taxpayers are going to end up footing that bill. Yes, 100%. I mean, they've got that wonderful golden formula. Um, I don't care what the markets do. I will be paid my pension in terms of the formula, and any shortfall will be paid by taxpayers. So that's why there are pressure groups so that the government pension is more, is, is more transparent about the returns, what they're doing with money. Because it's one of these things, if you can kick this down the road for many, many years before one day you, you realize that that can is empty and you have to put money back into it. So that's another advantage. The government pension funds or the members don't care. They don't, they don't even read their statements. They don't have to. It's the people in the private pension funds that should be taking a far greater interest as to what's happening. And as I mentioned to you in a, in a program of three years ago, we often find people coming into our practice all around the country saying, guys, my pension fund hasn't, hasn't made any progress for the last 10 years. And I was always told that the last 10 years are the most fantastic period to achieve this fantastic pot of money. Now I can retire. And I can tell you, when we double-check those numbers, some of them are 100% spot on. Not even in nominal terms have they not shown any growth, but even in real terms. They've just absolutely made no money in 10 years. They're basically getting out what they put in without any growth. Now, And, and they say, and there have been some court cases at the um, tribunal. I read about it yesterday where someone took Liberty Life to court about the big difference in the projected numbers 10 years ago and what eventually was paid out to him. And he, he lost his case, but there are more and more people starting to say, heck, hang on here. You kind of indicated growth at 10, 15, 16%, and I'm ending up with four. How can you guys get it so wrong? And we're seeing the cumulative effect of this lack of growth for the last 10 years, and I can only take it straight down to Regulation 30, uh, 28 and, and then the limitation of 30% only. I'm Joshua Roberts of Biz News, and with me is Afri Matsi, Andries van Heerden, Andres, Afrimats have done a number of deals in the last few years, most recently Glenover Phosphate. Most of the acquisitions have been in the commodity space. What are the due diligence processes like when analyzing the supply and demand, i.e. the fundamentals of any given commodity? Uh, yes, Justin, it's, a, it's, it's quite a comprehensive process that we follow. Uh, over the years, we've developed um, a, a very nice uh, template that we use where we look at the the entire uh, the market the the demand di- uh, characteristics the the long term pricing trends um, you know we try to filter out these spikes that we we've recently seen in the prices um, and then obviously on the operational side we 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 spend a lot of time understanding the operational aspects of the business looking at the geological side uh, right through the the beneficiation and, and the upgradability of the mineral um, and, uh, and and the operational cost drivers and that sort of thing. So it's a very, very comprehensive process. 
the latest acquisition of Glenover. What are the commodities involved here and that specific target market for those commodities? Well, it's a very, very interesting geological formation. Um, the uh, the main uh, the main pit or the main formation is is uh, was originally mined for phosphate. There's a, there's a there's a very good quality phosphate there, and the the byproduct is actually very valuable nowadays. That's rare earths um, plus a few other minerals uh, such as scandium and niobium and things like that. Um, and then there's a right adjacent to the pit. There's uh, there's vermiculite. So the phosphates is for the agricultural industry. That's a fertilizer component. Um, the, the rare earths, as you probably know, that's a modern mineral. Uh, mostly, uh, many of those components are used for for the manufacturing of of uh, permanent magnets, uh, which will uh, in the electrical vehicle market, for instance, be be uh, used. And then the vermiculite is a uh, um, is is something used by the horticulture horticulture industry, but it's also used for in the construction industry for fire retardant panels and things like that. Besides the template that you spoke about when doing acquisitions, you guys are renowned for being one of the best uh, corporate actions teams on the JSE. How have you guys managed to get it more correct often than not, especially in the commodity space when prices are notoriously difficult to predict? I think the, uh, there's a few basic things. Um, we are not the best uh, client for, for corporate finance houses because we don't use very uh, uh, fancy models and things like that. We, we try to keep it very simple. Uh, we make sure that we, we, uh, we choose our projects very, very carefully and make sure that we, we are reasonably certain that we'll earn our, our cash outlay back very soon after, after the investment. Um, so, in other words, make very, very conservative uh, assumptions. Um, and then it's about execution, making sure that you get that job done as quickly as possible, as efficiently as possible, bank those checks early on. The iron ore operations are a significant contributor to earnings. We've seen the iron ore price come off since the middle of the year quite considerably. Is this something that you're concerned about going into 2022? It's actually quite interesting that people would say that. You know, the, the fact is the iron ore price is significantly higher than what it was last year and the year before that. Uh, so we saw a bit of a spike in the middle of the year. And uh, we must be careful not to do uh, two-point projections, to take a point six months ago and a point now and say that is a trajectory. We, we saw a spike. We, we always said that was unnatural and it would not last. And we are back to more. Uh, we still had a very high price. I mean, the... the Iron ore price yesterday for the 62% on the 62% plats index was $108. So uh, um, it's a good price. And uh, at these prices, our our mine is highly profitable. The diversification strategy becoming a multi-commodity player. Is this the thesis in layman's terms? Some commodities will be doing well at some points and some will be doing badly, to put it really simply. Yeah, we've always been uh, since since we started with a with a business fifteen years ago. We've always been about diversification. We we've diversified in in the markets that we're in, but also uh, between markets. And and we we believe that the the wider your your portfolio is diversified, but within your core your your core skills, uh, the more likely you are to to be able to sustain your your growth. So, uh, in essence, yeah, we, we, we think the diversification model is crucial to our strategy. The aggregates business, I spoke to the PPC CEO the other day. He said that he hasn't seen any of the uptick in the government infrastructure spend or the so-called drive. Have you guys seen it from your side? No. Um, we, we've seen a, a shift in the market. The market has gone to the smaller end. I've seen, I think the cement guys will also tell you that the market has moved from bulk uh, cement uh, user, users to bag cement users, which tends to be your your smaller builders and 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 smaller projects. And we've seen that same same uh, thing happening in our business. Um, so, in short, the government uh, infrastructure pro- uh, spend has not happened yet. And what's the environment like for further acquisitions? I know there's been a few over the last few years, but do you see more opportunities in the market? 
Well, over the short term, we need to bed the, the last two down. We're still busy with, uh, with Gravenhage, our manganese mine. We're still busy with the, with the implementation phase of that. And that's, pro- that's going to keep us busy for, for another year. Uh, Glenover has just started. Um, and that's also going to keep us busy. So over the short term, I don't see uh, a lot of, uh, a- activity on that space for us. But the pipeline of opportunity is, is the best that I've ever seen. Um, so it's, we, we are, you know, we are really blessed with fantastic opportunities. Warm welcome to Craig Young from NX Developments, one of our business partners. Craig, good to be talking with you on, well, uh, yeah, yeah, man, uh, the, the whole Ingwe project, which we've been uh, giving a little bit of exposure to on Biz News has seemed to have hit a very sweet spot with the business tribe. Uh, we've noticed a lot of people are interested in having a look or having a closer look at the project. Uh, maybe we can unpack a little bit. First of all, it's near Plet. Uh, it's something very unusual, 100 hectares, only 30 houses, off the grid completely. That's a heck of a lot in a very short sentence. What gave you the idea to do this? I was actually a friend of mine from Varsity who owns the farm, uh, William Edwards. He started the process eight years ago. And uh, then when he got closer to getting his rights, he asked us if we would like to do the development f- on his behalf because he just realized you need experience with this type of development being off the grid and all the green aspects to it. So we got involved about two years ago. Eight years ago, that sounds like a long time in gestation. Uh, are there lots of hoops to jump through? Yeah, well, the main thing is always the environmental ap- uh, aspect and the impact of the environmental. So that's normally the biggest headache in these type of developments. It's a good thing as well because, I mean, then obviously you get the rights correct. And uh, it's, I think it's the right thing to do, even though us developers hate taking long because time is money. But in a way, it is a good thing. I mean, it's such a special site. I mean, the forest, all 50 hectares are like completely indigenous. Um, like 99% of the aliens have been removed. So pristine development like that, you would expect that uh, environmental affairs and stuff will be very strict and the conditions are actually very strict. So for people who know Plet, where is it situated? We're in the crags, in the heart of the crags. Uh, the closest sort of places people will know will be the Curlin's Big Polo Estate. They're about two kilometers from us. So, and we're on the, on the, on the ocean side of the N2, where East Curlin's is on the mountain side. And yeah, we're also very close and in the heart of all and most of the new wine farms. So we're very lucky. We're quite surrounded by very good estates and, 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 uh, very nice area to be. 100 hectares, uh, 30 houses. How big is each stand? We are limited in the footprint of the of the dwellings to 420 square meters. We're not allowed to go outside that footprint. It's also an environmental uh, thing. Uh, we are entitled double story. So obviously you can then up your size to 800 squares. That's from the dwelling side. Your actual footprint of your gardens and things is 1,100. But what we've done is you, you naturally flow into the entire permaculture and farming area around you. As long as you stick within the, the strict guidelines of, depends whether you're in a forest area or grassland area or permaculture area, you can actually extend your garden within our guidelines and have your own natural forest around your house or your own natural uh, permaculture around your house. So you're not that limited in size, just depending on which area you choose and what you want to do. It sounds, uh, so if I can just understand it from a, a real uh, kind of townies approach, you've got a quarter acre that will be in the middle of a, this huge estate, and there's only 30 yes. of you in there so presumably it's not you're not going to have anybody uh, obscuring your view no not at all there are certain units uh, there are currently existing houses on the estate which were like either workers houses or, or just uh, little timber chalets those footprints are fixed uh, we can't move them because they don't allow us to do any extra disturbance to the natural forest so those units are closer together 
But all the new units, there are going to be 19 completely new units where there are no existing buildings that we demolish. Those units are, are very exclusive and very far apart. So, I mean, your neighbors are quite a long distance from you. But is there going to be any communal um, uh, ability to, to come together? Your neighbors might be far, but things like clubhouses, etc.? Yes, uh, we have designed a, a, a general's clubhouse with squash and tennis and gyms and yogas and place for the children to play and just like a nice get-together lounge, bar, little kitchen area. There's also a huge existing educational center because the farm before and they used to do educational training. So that we're turning into a business hub where there will be facilities for people that want to do most of their work from home and if they've got extra printing or they just need additional assistance from admin side, there will be a little business center for that. Then we've got a current area where there used to be an old soccer field. So because it was disturbed already, they allowed us to do that as the training area for golf. So we're going to have a little golf area where there will be putting greens, chipping greens, um, and right next to it, there's an old little timber building that's been there for many years, and that will turn into like the little 19th hole. Be like a little honesty pub where you can go with your friends after you've chipped and played. If there are only 30 houses, it seems like quite a big development or communal development uh, for a relatively few people. Yeah, look, we were limited by the environmental. So, as I said, there are 11 existing homes. Obviously, we demolished them and built in, in, inside our new architectural guidelines. But the maximum disturbance footprint that we're allowed to do on the entire estate, including new roads, is only one hectare. They only allow us to disturb 1% of the entire uh, 100 hectares. That's how strict they were. So that's where our limitations came in, and we had to design and decide maybe a bit bigger and uh, less units or smaller and more units. And we rather opted for less units and bigger units because we find this, this is for the discerning buyer. Uh, such a big estate, obviously, you're going to need uh, people that understand the environment, people that love the environment, people that understand food and water security. We're extremely lucky. We, uh, the farm has never run out of water because it's got a, a place called the Whiskey Creek, which is uh, above the, the N2. And that feeds us all our water. That's never run dry. Uh, uh, in, nobody knows whenever that, 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 that has run dry. That's lived there for many, many years. Obviously, then we're going to bring in the solar and, and the other off-the-grid and off-the-grid uh, sewage systems. And then obviously on top of that, we're lucky having all this water. We've got 40 hectares of water rights for irrigation. So this allows us to like, go food security in, in, in a very organized manner with permaculture. And so that's, I think, why the estate is so appealing. Further to that, we're also lucky there's various trails that have already been done on the, on the estate because they used to do like MTD cycling and trail running through, through the farm for quite a while. So we'll just upkeep these existing trails, which also, it's, it's nice. You know, you don't have to go off the estate if you don't want to. You, you've got everything there. You've got your sport. You've got your food. You've got your environment. And to take it a step further, it's probably because I grew up in a farm, and I remembered in the olden days how safe farms were, and that's quite the opposite today, is that we're even bringing in two little camping spots on our natural dams where the kids can go back to where they actually sleep out at night. They're safe. They can go and camp for the night in their own tent, and the parents can feel comfortable whether they're sleeping there, whether they're walking, running on the trails. You're in a 100% safe environment. Presumably the security and the perimeter is uh, quite hectic. Yeah, look, we've got uh, electrified game fencing at the moment, and we will bring in uh, um, uh, automatic cameras and, and, and human detection cameras where required, and that's what we do in all our states anyway. We, we find that that is the way to go now in the Eastern Cape, unfortunately, as well. It's not always just Joburg that's hectic, so crime is unfortunately, on the rise, and I think with COVID, it's become worse. So we're very well aware of that. Um, so, yes, security will be of a high standard. So what have you been involved with in the past? Uh, we've developed uh, in, in, uh, in the winelands quite a few estates. We were basically the first guys that did a development in 2000. We did the Sante Winelands estate. 
Um, it was also very exclusive. Obviously, there it, it was a, a different model where each house had vineyard and each house was allocated wine, but it was a very similar concept. Uh, we've done game farm developments in KwaZulu Natal, in Umakuji, Shuslugi. We also did city lodges. Um, and yeah, in and around Cape Town and Stellenbosch, we've done various estates and, and, and building. And then my partners uh, in Cape Town through Eurolux, they also got a, a long property track record of, of investment. So it, it works well. Clearly not your first rodeo. But Craig, uh, you said a discerning buyer. Uh, what is uh, what? What are the what are the price points here? The plots are from two and a half to six million, and then we've just got a, a very standard sort of project management uh, uh, fee structure. Um, we as developers on on this type of development we decided it's very difficult to give a turnkey. Normally, what would happen is you, you'd have choices of houses, and you'll have price points for the people to choose different designs. But because uh, the, the site is very so much, like you've got huge steep slopes in certain areas, other areas you're right on top of the mountain on grasslands, on flat sites. Um, so we decided we'd, we'd rather just as developers take our, our markup on the plots and we do a complete open book system on the construction side where we've got five approved contractors and we just project management the entire process for the client with architects, engineers, QSs, project managers, at a fixed fee. In association with BizNews, a warm welcome once again to Mags on Media. The effects of COVID-19 are still weighing heavily on our economy. And for companies facing tough times, ad spend traditionally has always been the first line item to be kicked into touch. So how can businesses grow revenue without so-called traditional advertising? I want to introduce you to Vokili Zondi. He's the managing director of the newly formed media solutions company, Gahasi Heart Media Group. Vokili, welcome and thank you very much for joining us. Let me wade straight in. Paint a picture for us. In your opinion, how badly is ad spend impacting the economy right now? Well, and first of all, uh, good afternoon, and thank you, thank you very much for for welcoming me and having me, uh, Jeremy. I think um, to answer your question, yeah, it 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 it, it is um, uh, a very difficult time in terms of kind of ad spend, but it's not all doom and gloom in the sense when you look at it, you know, overall. Um, what it is though is that we are all having to fundamentally shift how we have worked and how we are working and being a bit more business. Um, uh, orientated in our approach to how we sell our products and how we sell our solutions. Um, and rather than kind of, you know, um, you know, everything being a creativity ideas, um, and a platform driven thing, but rather more really around how we give, um, tangible return on investment beyond, you know, the mm-hmm. traditional reach and frequency. So it's requiring a lot more of us, uh, to get that piece of, of or that bit of rand. Um, and requiring quite a lot of agility, but uh, businesses need to market and they are aware that they need to market because we all, you know, every business is struggling right now. How do you find that balance then between creativity on the one side, which is a cornerstone, it's a pillar of good marketing and good common business sense on the other? Is that balance, do you think, more difficult to find? It is difficult. It it differs, um, uh, uh, Jeremy. I think the important part is for us, it requires uh, us to really understand the business that we are, you know, uh, working with or the client that we are working with. So it really does require that you go beyond just kind of looking at and saying, okay, I think you need this. Um, and more of, okay, let me understand your business. Let me see your, your long-term trajectory. What are you guys struggling with right now? And then applying creativity to that rather than leading with creativity and and somewhat being, you know, suggestive. Um, so it does require that we understand what each and every single one of our clients, what is in the telecoms, you know, let's say, for example, telecoms business, what is the main thing that's, you know, driving all of them right now? Where are their challenges on a case-by-case basis? And, you know, each and every one of our clients now, retail, banking, telecoms are really trying to drive their own digital platform. So how do we then switch how we are presenting uh, that solution to them to to be relevant. So it's a it's definitely a balancing act, but that's what we've always had to do in in our industry. It's just as I say, it's it's now 
really stretching us to have to understand the business aspect of things and then apply creativity. Yeah, you talk about balance. I think the tightrope has just gotten narrower and a lot higher, hasn't it? You also said that companies have to tailor their marketing budgets, and I quote, to address key business pain points. When it comes to the business that you're in then, what are those pain points? Can you elaborate on those? So I think from 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 you know our perspective, so we're representing what is traditionally seen as radio uh, uh, stations, you know, and what we're moving, what we are approaching it is is how we are approaching it is more to 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 look at solutions. And as I alluded to it earlier, is that it's important that we understand and be able to walk to a client without preconceived ideas, uh, but also walk enough to a client who's open enough to be able to give you a bigger, a proper picture of what it is that they're trying to achieve. Because we have to walk, you know, that that, that type of tightrope. And then also on top of that is that, you know, everybody wants the same impact uh, with less money at this moment. So how do we then adapt our businesses to be able to to answer to that? You know, everybody is very innovative at the moment, all of our clients um, across all um, sectors. So it's really taking a keen interest uh, that I think keeps you afloat now in what your client needs and making your business a, more of a partner than somebody who's knocking on their door and saying, I think you need another cell phone contract when I'm like, I, I've got four of those. Um, because I think that's how we really were starting to be as media people, kind of forcing our agenda instead of understanding what it is somebody else wants and tailoring what we bring to them. I like those two words that you use, relevance and pivot. How have you forced yourselves and I guess your clients to embrace that philosophy more this year? Because it'll happen even with greater intensity in 2022, no doubt. Yes. Well, funnily enough, um, I think that's the part that has been great is that we don't having to force the clients. The clients are looking for Great because they have no choice. Um, because you know, traditionally, yes, exactly. Um, so it is a situation. Yes, we used to have a much harder time trying to, I feel, kind of land some of these these concepts or kind of you know you want to engage with your audience, and also what we used to do traditionally as let me say traditional radio or traditional just as media across the board, is we used to always sell radio in spite of another platform, and it's that's nonsensical. Um, you have to, if you're going to have a campaign that's going to be impactful, kind of ensure that you've got multiple touch points. What do we then offer in that multiple uh, touchpoint offering that is going to be able to kind of move the campaign further than that? So it really does require to, as I again I say, that we look what does the client need and we fix something that's going to be relevant to that rather than what do we want and what do we need and then try to force everybody else into it. That business is gone and clients respond positively so you don't have to push them up the hill when it comes to that approach. Just a final question then. Make the case for radio. Why is it still relevant? Case for radio, I think radio has 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 constant consistently been you know the 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 doom around radio has been threatened so many times uh, that you know I've been in in the industry for maybe about fifteen years. Um, it's about the fourth time now that I recall that radio, oh, the big gloom, <laughs> big doom and gloom. Um, one, secondly, I think what we've also not done particularly well as radio is show the impact of radio beyond radio. Um, you know, there is radio is still relevant in a digital conversation. We've not been linear for the longest time as even as FM. Um, and on top of that, I mean, like right now, there's, you know, the, 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 the digital aspect and digital uh, platforms and ways of engaging with audiences. I mean, our stations, uh, Kakasi and Heart, um, have, have, you know, have got great responses uh, from a digital point of view. So campaigns where the ROI is being measured from a digital point of view, radio is able to drive that. We've not though done a very good job of showing the industry that we are bigger than that. Um, one, and secondly, radio has not lost these droves of audiences that we were promised we were going to lose. If anything, we've had to, all of us, adapt beyond radio, um, you know, to video. Our presenters themselves are able to offer a influencer solution to a client if we presented in that particular way um podcast um and 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 additional content going beyond that um because our audience is hungry for the content so it's responding to your audiences um and first party data becomes totally key in that in knowing your audience better than anybody first of all so you can serve them the right content but then secondly so that in servicing your clients you've got a deeper richer understanding of that audience we have had to adapt we we radio has always had to be audience focused and that's why radio is going to survive is because what the audience wants we respond to 
Well, thanks for being with us today. And indeed, since the 8th of March, when we first hit the airwaves with the Biz News Power Hour, I hope you've enjoyed it as much as we have in bringing it to you. Look forward to being back in your company again in the new year. Until then, cheerio. You've been listening to the Power Hour brought to you by the team at Biz News.